I'm Dean Deal. And I'm Steve Hoskins. And you're listening to This is the Good Life, a podcast devoted to deciphering what it means to live as a Christian in this day and age. And not just a Christian, but as philosophers, theologians, and maybe even decent golfers. And a marketing guy. Yeah, used to be a marketing guy. Yeah, so speak for yourself. As two longtime college professors, we share a common goal to bring virtue and character back into the conversation of what it means to be Christian. We'll do this by unpacking the thoughts of both our current culture and prominent philosophers like Aristotle, Kant, Descartes, and a guy called Jesus Christ. You'll find that some pretty old thinkers had some pretty good ideas. So join us for a conversation worth having about life worth living. After all, this is The Good Life. Welcome to the final episode of the first season of This is the Good Life. We've been waiting for it. Yes, we have. Tension's been building. It's been building through five great episodes. We've been getting letter. Letter? (laughs) Just one? Is that all we have is one? And counting. And counting. So if you're listening, please write us. But hey, today in the final episode of this season, we want to talk about Christianity as the good life. And there it is. Let's get in. So, Steve, here we are. It's been a long journey. Episode six. <laughs> Episode we've, six. We've talked about happiness. We've yeah. talked about duty, the authenticity. End of the, the end of the road, or as my graduate professors always said, the doorway to hope. <laughs> That's exactly. And we've talked about the be all you can be. We we have thrown those things around. We've kicked them around. We've we've tested the tires. We've seen how they hold up. Yeah. To some degree, how well, they hold well, up as ideas. And we've done it in this great Mac and. Tyrian, McIntyrean fashion, where we allowed them to uh, to use McIntyre's great word, compete. Yes. These are rival notions. They're, uh, I think, obviously there. I mean, you don't have to search hard for these in the ways that they present themselves in culture, in life, uh, in what we do every day, and as they present themselves as moral options. Right. And, and I, here's what's so funny. It, it's like every time we've talked about Every one of these, there's. I'm going. I've done that. Oh, I've I've done that. There's times when this has guided my life. Yeah. I remember that decision. This was totally driving. I think I made the comment. How many classes we, did you drop just because you thought this will be something that makes me happy? Exactly. Uh, I don't know about <laughs> I think classes, I, I dropped, but I've dropped jobs. I dropped guitar <laughs> lessons. I dropped intro to um, accounting. Where I said to Morris Stocks. Uh, on the third day of class. Hey, this has been fun, but when are we going to do something different? And he says, Steve, this is accounting. We do this every day for three years. And I said, well, this has been fun. Yeah, Did my three you. days see you, went and dropped the class. Exactly. I remember saying when we were talking with uh, in the episode with Dan about authenticity that every bonehead decision I've ever made <laughs> has been when I was being most true to myself. Oh, man. So we've we've kicked the tires around on these, but now I'm sure if we've done our job well, our our listeners, both of them, are are saying to themselves, okay, guys, what is the answer? What is the telos? What as as believers, as Christians, as as members of the Christian community, what should our telos be? And and how what should be the driving narrative, the driving force of our existence in life? Yeah. And now we get to try to answer that. Yeah. And and I think in answering that, we're gonna have to sum up a whole lot of what we said. Uh we're gonna have to maybe bend it and push it in, in ways that talk about, okay, how then do we not only sort of live in this moral, intellectual, cultural climate, 
but how do we faithfully be living witnesses of what this place called Trevecca is in terms of the good life? And and one of the first things that should precede a lot of that conversation is the 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 story where the person comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. And he goes, why do you call me good? Yes. You ask me what is good. There is but one who is good. And I think that that person went away and didn't ask him any more questions. I think that was what I would do. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Somebody else take up the question yeah, asking. I have, I've been embarrassed enough here today. Okay. Exactly. It's somebody else's turn. But, but as an, kind of an underlying thing as we talk about the good, that anytime we talk about the good, capital G, we are talking about our God. Yeah. And, and our God, who is a living God. Who is a living who, God who, in has, commu- who, is, who right. participates in this community right. with us. And who has a history that is beyond history, that is eternal. My favorite translation of John 1 is in something, uh, didn't sell, it uh, should have, the Revised English Bible. And John 1 uh, in the Revised English Bible says, in the beginning, the word already existed. There you go. You know, and then you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes. But, you know, there's that, but then there's that, living God who lives with us, you know, and, and that used to be easier to discern because we just, we were taught to sing about it and he walks with me and he talks yes. to me, a little marching music. But then there is this God who has great hopes for the future and in that future where the creation itself and us are renewed in his image and in his likeness day to day, moment by moment, I would argue practice by practice. Yes. And that God is our purpose. That God is our telos. That God is our good. Capital G. No other gods. No other goods. That's it. Before or beyond or outside of that God. So we've talked a lot about Alistair McIntyre in this, so let's just jump in. Okay. It hit me when we were talking about the notion of the good life. And what is the good? What is the telos? That in any healthy community, McIntyre says there are rival notions of the good, three rival notions of moral inquiry. In his book, he, he mentions three that are good. And at Trevecca, you know, that's an interesting conversation in any school, but particularly at a Christian school where you put words like leadership and service on the gates, you know, coming into the community. Right. And I uh, pointed out, uh, last year I did a a video thing for the marketing department, and I pointed out to them, you know, that there are these two rival notions, which they're not just motivation and inspiration, they're telos, you know, their purpose. Right. And they said, yeah, and said, when you talk, it's always Christian service. And I said, well, that's because I'm a McClurkinite. I'm a person who was educated by people at Trevecca, uh, you know, indoctrinated into the tradition, inducted into the tradition, born into it, really, in some sense. Uh, my mother was a student here. My family were students. Several family members were students here before I was born. And so whenever I think about Trevecca, I think about this whole telos of Trevecca as being Christian service. But the genius, says McIntyre, is that in these rival notions of moral inquiry in a community— a place where we have a sense of the good, where it's not chaos, uh, where it's not, you know, vacuous, as McIntyre says, where there's just simply privation of good, which results in, you know, just emotivism and preference, that these notions don't kill each other. 
they lovingly debate and argue. You know, it's, it's what a college should be. Uh, it's a place not of quarreling, because that's what chaos is. But it's a place of argument. And so the whole notion for, of me for leadership is not a bad notion. Uh, in fact, it is a recognizable good, uh, a telos. But it only emerges or finds its place within the life of the telos of Christian service at Trevecca. And so what we do then is we have to find ways to intelligently argue for these rival notions within the purpose, the telos of the community in terms of virtues and practices. So business, for instance, or, you know, to to put it more baldly, uh, economic gain can find a place as a rival notion of the good, but only in support of Christian service. And when you say that, a lot of people hear things that they really that really aren't being argued. You know, they may hear uh, a for, some form of Marxism, or they may hear that the only economic good is philanthropy. Those are things that are arguable, but that's not necessarily the notion that emerges within a community that is committed to a telos or a purpose. And I was talking with a student, a former student today, Hank Spalding, uh, who did a PhD in theological ethics at Northwestern, and. You know, Hank made the very good point that the practices which embody the virtues for McIntyre of the community that are the the solid way, the practicable way of becoming a member of a society or a community, becoming a part of the living tradition, are the things then that help us negotiate how those goods then support. So in this case, something like economics supporting Christian service. But he says they have to be interpreted through those other practices within the community in which virtue is expressed like the sacraments. So all of a sudden, economics and sacrifice, you know, become a a really potent way, I think, of thinking about, you know, where is the place for money? Where is the place for work within a community of a people committed to the good in this case, you know, how we have to ask the question as Trevecca, how is it that business can be practiced as not only a rival notion, but a supported notion of the good of Christian service? I think we have to say, ask the same thing of education. I think, and and this would probably really be a, a, a place where a lot of people would, you know, want to talk to me, that ministry is the same way. And we no longer define the ministry the way we did when I was here as a student, where everybody was studying to be a preacher and they wore ties and carried briefcases to class. And because I didn't wear a tie and carry a briefcase to class, I was not allowed to be a member of the Trevecca Ministerial Association when I was here as a student, even though that I might was not a, have been the only reason. Actually, as I recall, there was more going on than the lack of a tie and a briefcase. Yeah, as as I tell people, if you could have seen the look on Barbara McLean's face when she saw me walking on the campus as a faculty member, uh, it, it was uh, one of those priceless moments of my life. And she said, "You." And I just laughed. And so did she. She was wonderful about it. But anyway, I think that when we talk about these ideas, when we talk about the notion of the good life, that we have to learn to think, and I want to use this in a qualified way, argumentatively, that our discussions are great arguments, fun, interesting ways of not only explaining 
how the community does its work, how the community functions, but explaining how we find our place within it with you know, God's guidance. What you're talking about reminds me a lot of conversations with Ray Dunning about calling. Yes, that's it. Where he talks about circles. There's an outer circle of a calling where God is calling everything, all of creation to himself. Yes. So is God calling? What is the call of God? The call, he's calling us to himself. Then there's another ring where eventually that call to himself results in a call to the church. Yes. And we are called, so there's next ring. So there's a universal call to everywhere, come to me. Yep. Then there's this specific call of come to my church. Yeah. And not my church, you know, the church I go to, but the church, my people, come and join my people. Then there's another ring deeper inside that's a specific call to vocation or a call to work or a call to being yes. as an individual Yeah, that goes even deeper. And so he said, you know, the, the biggest conflict that we have about calling is that middle, that, that inner ring. And we need to relax about it because it lies carefully within to much greater callings. In the same way, when we talk about the good, there is a good that sits at the top of that pyramid, the greatest good. Right. Which, which then, is service of God. Right. Exactly. God calling us to yeah. himself. Right. Whether it's the entire and, creation to serve exactly. him in praise or us to serve him in specific vocations. That's exactly right. But then within that, then there are goods that we small g goods small g goods <laughs> yeah that that we debate about and lovingly correct each other and yeah. and talk about the relative yeah. merits and it, a, a lot of it is about arranging the furniture within a room the room's set yeah the good is set yeah but now how are we going to arrange the furniture how do we yeah. live our lives yeah. within that room yeah. yeah what's really cool in those discussions uh, as i have developed as a student over the years. And I'd like to think at 59 that I'm still a student. Uh, it's probably why Man, I, 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 so. teach, I hope so, but it's probably why I teach school. It's like the only thing I've ever had success at in my life. And there is in certain quote unquote human geography circles, this idea that what human geography is, and this, this is an academic term is the human intrusion into the environment. And it sees that human work as an imposition. That's not what we're talking about. There are other human geographers who talk about the way that, for instance, Frank Lloyd Wright talked about architecture, and he talked about organic architecture. And he sought to build right. buildings that were not just commensurate with the landscape, but that were a part Right. Of the landscape. And so, you know, he has these buildings, we call them ranch houses, but they're these long, low, you know, roofed buildings. Whereas in certain architectural periods, you got these huge, you know, gothic spires and, and these things pointing everything upward. And it's all, you know, very, very interesting, very fun. But for uh, a guy like Frank Lloyd Wright, he wanted you to look at the roof of a house and see the horizon. He wanted you to see that world that it was a part of. And that captures the imagination in a certain way. So when we're talking about the room is set, but now there's work to be done, you know, we're not talking about intrusion or imposition. That's right. We're talking about the expression of character and virtue and the arrangement of a room in a way that makes sense to who we are, who we are called to be, what our telos is. And I think that's what, what this podcast is all about is progressively working through the idea of why are we here and what are we supposed to be doing? Yeah. What is life about? Which yeah. is ultimately 
philosophy and theology. Yeah. And the minute you use those words, it feels like a class that you took in in college. Whereas reality, we're all philosophers, we're all theologians. Yeah. We just may be really bad or lazy yeah. philosophers or really bad or lazy theologians. Yeah. And and I think that overcoming that tendency to to laziness, let's let's go with lazy rather than bad because that hurts my feelings. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but that Which tend- is the worst thing we could possibly which is the do. Worst we thing. don't want to hurt people's yeah, feelings. Yeah, we certainly don't want to hurt people's feelings. So we need to talk about the whole beginning of of this conversation in McIntyre's Theological Ethics Project. You know, when we talk about overcoming that laziness, it it really is the dynamic spark to becoming not just better at the telos, but becoming a member of that traditioned, patterned, socially situated community. And McIntyre makes this great point. Well, actually, it's a series of points when when he begins his project. And so McIntyre says, the world fell apart in the Enlightenment. And he said, we took what was a very intensely situated theological version of the world, the call of all creation to purpose, the call of each individual to vocation within purpose. And we allowed the privation or the privatization of society to take over philosophy so that philosophy, rather than being an expression of how to live the good life, became a, an expression of my personal preference, a privation. And then he talks about how that takes on different thought worlds or, or different schools of thought in the Enlightenment project. And so you have someone like David Hume who says that philosophy is basically about how to achieve personal happiness. Hume uses the word the passions. And so philosophy becomes a matter of me figuring out how to do whatever I'm passionate about, regardless of the world, regardless of my calling, regardless of the needs of my community and the people around me. Uh, There's no social situatedness to it. It's just that pursuit of passion. And you hear this if you stop and, and just do a quick run through a bookstore these days. Uh, I was in uh, uh, South Carolina recently and stopped in an old bookstore that I knew of, and and I know the proprietor and have known him for years. And I just kind of did a quick, and all of a sudden I saw uh, the art of happiness, the architecture of happiness, um, how to be a happy business person. And, you know, and there's just, there's these versions of David Hume, and these books are not written by personal life coaches. These are books written by scholars and, and, and people who are public philosophers, like Alain de Baton, in, uh, who wrote The Architecture of Happiness. A really wonderful book because it tells you if you try to build a house to make you happy, you're in for nothing but pain and hurt. Uh, <laughs> re- you know, he talks yeah. about leaking roofs and patios misplaced. It's like the movie like, The Money Pit. Like the money, movie The Money Pit, exactly. And, and so you have that school uh, of, of Enlightenment philosophy. Then you have Immanuel Kant who says that uh, the only thing that works in philosophy is reason and that people always act above their passions, people who are normal and good and right. Maybe the people he knew. Maybe the people he knew. (laughs) And you need to remember that Kant never traveled more than 30 miles from the spot he was born, uh, which is that one salient thing. You're sitting in a a history of philosophy class. Neither did Jesus. Neither did Jesus, but— He was Jesus. uh, Yeah, but he was Jesus, and he came from heaven. He had been a few miles. (laughs) Uh, Immanuel Kant just came from this little town in Germany and never left. 
But we digress. But as we always do. Do we? Yeah, do we? Shocking. <laughs> uh, um, but the interesting thing about Kant is, is Kant says that not only is reason the guiding good or the telos, but he says all humans at all places and in all times have the exact same reason. There's no social situatedness. There's no needs of a community. And so he argues in a way that makes a lot of people happy because it means they can impose their virtues or their sense of the good on everybody else. And you see this being argued in, uh, right now, American politics, but you see it being argued in politics all over the world where people are trying to say, my politics are the politics of the good, and all normal people everywhere throughout time have always believed these same things, and that's just not true. No. You know, the third version uh, of it is the version, you know, that's more, I think, amenable to Christianity, and that's the philosophy of Soren Kierkegaard, who taught that in the Enlightenment Project in response to Hume and Kant and others like them. These are all written in response, these are by all the way, written, these which are is all part of the problem. Thought, that's part of the problem because we don't write anything down anymore. Yeah. And Kierkegaard, you know, is this very upset, angry person. He's angry at the church. He's angry at his society. He literally, you know, the stories are told about how he would sit out on the porch steps of his house on Sunday mornings as people would go to church to worship the Christian God whom he believed in and loved, and he would mock them. Just, just you know, say things about their parentage, uh, you know, and other things that in the South would be, we call them fighting words. But Kierkegaard argues for this radical choice that what there is in terms of philosophy is a way to cut yourself off radical to, you know, that's what radical means to cut yourself off from all of these things that are necessary and just make a personal choice. And a lot of people like to hear that too, because they feel like no one around them understands them or they, they don't feel at home in their church anymore, or they don't feel at home in their business anymore. You know, I, I hear it from my friends who work in corporate jobs a whole lot. Uh, I, feel, I hear it from my friends who have been in the ministry for decades. You know, my church has left me. My business has left me. And Kierkegaard argues that we're standalone, radical individuals before God, and that's all there is. And so what we have to do is make a radical choice. You know, be all you can be. Um, you know, stand up and, and be that person. And in these different schools of thought, McIntyre argues uh, in his work after virtue, what is lost is that great sense of community formed character. Well, the image of God. The, the image of God is lost, but the image of God in us, but the image of God in society as well. Where And he says what's lost is this sense that one can be initiated into a community, can practice the life of the community, and become, whether they're born into it or whether they come into it you know, yesterday, but through these practices which embody the virtues that communities say is our living witness to the telos. And so at a place like Treveca, uh, that's everything from uh, taking the Lord's Supper in chapel, sacraments, to daily prayer, prayer in class, to uh, that, that long march of graduation, you know, where we all gather and we celebrate the achievements of, of those who have graduated. And we don't recognize them as leaving. 
we recognize them as being commissioned. I love the way the Salvation Army talks about it uh, as they have become a part of, of the community that is Trevecca. And McIntyre says that in that, in that, and this is what I think is really interesting, in the practice of virtue situated in a community with a purpose is the idea of the self, if you will, a recovery of me, of us together. I can't be me without right. that community. I can't be me and not practice those virtues. Exactly. And, and you can't be you and we can't be us without doing them together. And when I say image of God, I'm not talking about me as an individual. Right. When we are created in the image of God, that is, that's not me. Yeah. It's us. It's us. We are created. Yeah. Where there's no longer slavery free Greek or Jew. Right. In, in our, our image. image. And then they live life together. So there's and, yeah, there's and, no recovery of the image of God for me alone. Yeah. Sorry, Kierkegaard. The one person he wasn't mad at was his editor. Yeah. <laughs> because true. his editor just let him do whatever he wanted. His editor really needed to get to work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you start reading. Let me tell you, the, the worst the worst two hours of my education were the first 40 pages of a book Kierkegaard wrote called The Concept of Anxiety. In some translations, it's called The Concept of Dread. I have never spent two more dreadful hours <laughs> and exactly. I got through 40 pages and I'm a fast reader and I'm sitting there going, Oh my, this guy really needed an editor because he we could have said all this that's in about every two time, pages. Exactly. That's what I think. Every time I read his stuff, like he, he loves his editor. Oh, some of this almost feels like it should be part of the, the last episode where we begin to talk about the good, mm -hmm. you know, cause we're going to throw happiness, authenticity, duty, and self-actualization those all have their place in some ways, but um, they can't be the top. They can't be the ultimate telos. All of those things, I do have a duty, a yeah. charge to keep I have, Yes, which I struggle with that, that hymn. I do have a charge to keep, but that falls under a greater calling. I, I should be true to myself once I'm the self that I was made to be. Yes. <laughs> there is an order to it. You know, a lot of these are things... For me to know my duty. Here's the problem with happiness, authenticity, duty, self-actualization. The problem with these things as an ultimate tell us is I don't know what makes me happy. I don't know who I yeah. am. I don't know what my, where my duty lies. Yeah. And actualizing myself as I am, as an unsaved, as an unenlightened, uninitiated, being, uninitiated being I, can't, I can't do those things. I don't know what makes me happy. In fact, when I've pursued things that I think will make me happy, I've often ended up miserable pursuing happiness because I don't know what makes me happy. And I don't know what the word happy even means. I can't, yeah. I can't do my duty when I don't know where my greater duty lies. And one of the things that I think is a problem is when we divorce ethics from philosophy. Ethics, we treat ethics like it's a standalone thing. Yeah. And ethics has devolved to the point of decision-making. How do mm -hmm. I make the right decision? And so if duty is your highest good and you're faced with a decision, you got to go, all right, where does the greater duty lie? I always think of the Star Trek movies, mm -hmm. you know, the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one and of Spock giving up his life. And then the next movie search for Spock, Kirk, you know, tells him, well, the need of the one outweighed the needs of the many. And they're trying to deal with these. How do you make good ethical decisions? Where do you, where does your duty lie? And without an orienting telos, the, the true north of a, a driving, guiding, overriding telos, you don't know where your duty lies. There has to be a compass 
that points north before you can even begin to approach those. And then those decisions become a lot easier because it's like, where are we on the map? Well, where's north? Yeah. Well, two things here that I think are really important in this discussion of the good life. Uh, The first is the community, the socially situated arena in which we become good. It's the only way to do it. And notice I use the word become because it's constantly being perfected. Excellence is constantly being demanded. New situations are arising in history. We have uh, different issues and problems and challenges than we did when you and I were students. And so it's, it's incumbent upon the community to name the good and to name the good in such a way that it is not just discernible and understood, but that the good can be lived out and practiced. And so there is no separation, second thing, between God and the pursuit of life. God and the pursuit of life, the pursuit of the good, are combined in, in a way that you have to, as Stanley Hauerwas says in this wonderful essay called On Removing the And, that you have to find ways intellectually and practically. And those, by the way, here I did it, right? He would say you have to find ways intellectually, practically, not intellectually and practically, to remove the and. So that when we talk about philosophy, we're talking about philosophy ethics. When we talk about theology and philosophy, when we talk about the ways in which God reveals God's self, and then we talk about the ways in which we live life toward the purpose of that revelation, which God tells us is to glorify him. We talk about theology philosophy. And so we have to work really hard. And that's not just intellectual work. It's practical work. It's intellectual practical work. And so when I participate in the sacraments, it's not just, well, it has to be this form and in this way with these words, but it has to be that the, the realization, and that's really a big word here, that in this, God is being revealed to us to nourish us, to love us, to remind us of what God says God uh, is doing in the world, which is saving us and recreating us in God's image. And when I participate in graduation, I am not just saying to each one of these, okay, you're now a powerful person. Go out and do what you want. Go figure it out. What I'm saying in graduation is you have reached a place where the community says, you embody this tradition. Now live it out all your days. And the idea of loving and serving God all our days, loving service to God all our days, is really where I think we have to capitalize. We have to name that. We have to name what loving service is. We have to embody loving service. You know, we can't let that turn into an emotive, uh, you know, thing of personal preference where somebody says, well, you spoke sternly. That's unkind. And you go, no, no. If I speak sternly, I do it in loving service, loving service to my students, loving service to my friends, loving service to the fellow members of my community. If I receive praise, uh, I can't do that in a way that says I'm singled out. It just means that I'm well-trained. And I think that when we talk about the good life, that when we dare to say, and it's really an interesting thing to say this, that we are members of a community of the people of the living God who have a name, Christian, and who have a home, 
Trevecca and who have a place service that we are saying something that then guides all of our search, all of our journeying towards things like happiness. As a teacher, I got into this business because I thought this will be a great way to entertain people. Uh, I can be an entertainer and I won't be tainted by celebrity or fame and in the entertainment industry. And, you know, I get up and I, as I, somebody says, what do you do at Trevecca? And I said, two shows a day, 30 weeks a year. And, you know, and, and some people laugh and some people cringe, but, you know, but what I do as a teacher is loving service to my students. That is in some measure passing on what we believe good is, what we believe happiness is. Uh, what we believe leadership is. And in doing that, I am participating in my call to the community, but I am calling them as I do it as specifically as possible. So we talk about the Wesleyan tradition. We talk about the Church of the Nazarene. We talk about Trevecca Nazarene University. I'm doing that as specifically as possible, realizing that in those terms, there is living history. God is being enjoined with our past, our, our history, but also meaning that I find that to be the character driving and character creating, character becoming force in the present with the hopes that in the future, that service, that good will be uh, not just lived out, but excelled at that it will be not just maintained, but it will rise to levels of excellence uh, that meet uh, the challenges of the day, and more importantly, do praise and service to God. Seeing the, the challenge we have, whether you're talking about Trevecca as an institution or the local church as an institution, who is, you know, we, we get students for four years, or if they're in graduate school, we get them for a few years. The church is getting them. Yeah. They've got to figure out how to do this throughout a life cycle. Yeah, they they come to us and they come to church. We all come to church, having emerged from a soup of ideas and beliefs to where when we say the word God, it means fifty different things out in the the soup. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like we've especially in the U.S. In the U.S., there has never been a greater mingling of cultures and ideas and beliefs and values and religions and age groups and nationalities. It, it is a soup of ideas and thoughts and beliefs and values and structures and, and ways of doing things. So the student that comes in and says, you're being harsh to me, where did that idea come from? Well, it didn't come from here. It came from outside of here. And when they leave us and when we leave our church and go back, see, you've spent your time here at Trevecca. I've spent my time working in the corporate world for places like Sony. Sony has a system of values. Sony has oh, yeah. a system of beliefs. Sony has all cultures have these things. And those those cultures do not align with the culture of the church. Well, and what you're talking about gets even more interesting when Sony buys a company. That's right. And all of a sudden, then you have to make room. And the only way that Sony can figure out how to make room is not to name a good, yeah. but to just say, uh, the good is something that is colorless or, you we know. Wanna make, uh, it's, we want to make people, Sony's, I can't remember the exact mission statement. I can look it up, but it's something along the lines of we want to make people happy. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and we want hap- it through entertainment. Yeah, and happiness is there's no substantive moral unity in in Sony's version of happiness. You know, there there is only to be very crass about it. You know, uh, the hope to sell records or product, and anything cut loose from its moral witness, anything cut loose from the good, has to find ways to subdue a sense of the telos, the purpose, in order to keep going the way it is. And that's sort of what you're talking about. That's where people are in the world. The good has been, if not just thrown out, it's certainly subdued or, or and, and I think this is probably more on point in this society, we just redefine it. See, and, and I, I think that it actually is a little more difficult to sort than even what you're describing. Because Sony doesn't exist just to make money. They could make, trust me, they could make more money doing something other than making music. Oh, okay. There is a telos of enabling people to discover happiness by discovering who they are, regardless of who they are. Oh, wow. There is a, there is an intent behind it. And most of your large companies... Look what's going on in our, our world right now where large companies are beginning to use their influence to say, we have our own political impact. We have our own resources. We have large multinational corporations acting in ways that are almost like nation states. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And I don't want to get outside of the discussion, but yeah. the, the point is there are opposing or alternative worldviews that we encounter in the workplace, in the media, through our entertainment, particularly through social media, that, that when, when we go to say, what is the most important thing in our lives? The church is not the only voice yeah. that's speaking. And here's what's difficult. I was, I was teaching a Sunday school class recently, and I was like, all right, on a scale of one to 10, with one being no thought at all, no, just, you just act, versus 10 being deeply thoughtful, very aware of the meaning of life and your purpose in it and your intent and your telos, very intentional about the decision. On a scale of one to 10, you're going to buy a new house or you're going to change jobs or you're going to get married. How, where would you place yourself? Uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. All right. right. What'd yeah, you have for and, dinner? And, What'd you have for dinner last night? I don't even remember. So that would be a one or a two. Yeah. Okay. So what we find is that when we're making the big decisions in life is when we're most acutely aware of -hmm. our deepest values, but our everyday decisions about what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What are we going to do? How are we going to spend our time? Where are we going to do our vacation? Those little decisions, which actually shape the habits. Yeah. So before you know it, Mr. Kant, Mr. Reason, I I go through one week of my life and I ate five McRib sandwiches in one week. (laughs) Now, if wait, 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 yeah, wait, yeah, wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you been to see the heart doctor? I, I'm trying to <laughs> avoid ribs. Well, yeah, that's dating yourself. That's exactly right. No, they still bring them <laughs> oh, around. I know they, they, they brought bring, them back. Yeah. They bring them back for a season every year. It's like deer season. Oh, it's like deer season. They have McRib season, and I know it's a limited time. There are too many jokes right there. But here's the thing: if reason were in charge. You don't go eat five micro. You know, it's one thing, you know, just slip up and eat one. Right. If you eat five, there's an intentionality. You can't just go, oops. Right. No, I decided right. I like that better. Yeah. Here's another. I'm, I'm driving a, a church on a Sunday morning. Got to be there early. You know, I'm, I'm driving. I've got music playing because I'm going to a rehearsal and I'm listening through the thing and I'm engaged and I'm driving along. 
I, I get there, I get out of the car, grab my base, look up, and I'm at work. Yeah. I set out to go to church. Next oh, thing you know, wow. habit wins. <laughs> Mo- you and your therapist had quite a session that no week, doubt. I'm assuming. It's like, depending on who you ask, it's anywhere from 60 to 90% of our daily activities yeah. are shaped by, by habit. And, and the point I'm trying to make is this. Entertainment, I know, I'm in the entertainment business. Entertainment, yeah. uh, social media, the media, uh, alternate worldviews, alternate ways of deciding why are we here and what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Don't attack us in the moment when we're deciding where we're going to work. It attacks us in the everyday little things that become yeah. habits. And the next thing you know, you're sitting in a class going, well, you're being mean. And you know what? What you just said, I don't just disagree. It offends me. Yeah. Now, where did that come from? Yeah. Well, it didn't come from here. Right. And it didn't come from the church because we've learned how in the church to disagree and to have conversation. We hope. We hope. Good church does. Good church does. But outside of the church, what we've said is there is no conversation. I, what, my belief is the ultimate belief, and you should have the same belief. And my belief is not rooted in some telos that's driven by God. Because I deny that the God exists. There is a God. And see, the thing when we encounter a world that is built on, you know, back to the Enlightenment, the idea of the Enlightenment was we need to get in a situation where the church can't tell us what to do. So let's rethink this thing. Let's come up with some systems where we can figure out how to make sense of all of this that doesn't require God and the church. Yeah. To be in charge. And that movement has has continued on. And the people who deny the existence of God think they are exactly like us, with one exception, we believe in God. And they don't understand that that little thing, that belief in God, changes everything. Everything. It changes everything. And our people, and, and, and just your average, you know, me, I'm not a preacher, not a theologian, well, professional I was theologian. Say, nor a professional I'm, preacher, but I have heard you preach on occasion. Yeah, you have. You've heard me <laughs> preach on many occasions. But my, my point is my vocation is not in the church. I work at Trevecca, but I also right. work out in the yeah. world. And I am constantly drinking from a fire hose of ideas and worldviews yeah. and values that are getting shoved down my throat. And when you're living in the soup, you're going to get soup on you. Yeah. Well, and I think some interesting things in, in, in the way that you talk about where we are at in terms of philosophy and culture and life, you know, you use the McRib dilemma uh, five days in a row. Dilemma? Uh, there was no there dilemma. Was no dilemma. <laughs> the dilemma no was dilemma. after the fact. Yeah, the dilemma is when, when McRib season is over, uh, you know, what do we do then? But you think about, so they bring back McRib for a season, and then McDonald's tried the healthy keto diet menu, uh, you know, which is the reasonable menu. You went with passion. And then there's the old uh, marketing slogans, you deserve a break today. Have it your Have way. Have it your way. Have it your way. And you see all of that in the same space. And you realize why we cannot come in society as it is constructed now in this post-enlightenment world uh, to any sense of the good. So what has to happen is that the community, for us, the church, has to tell us what the good is. And the community has then to be an embodiment of that. Uh, You mentioned in some of our conversations, Ray Dunning talking about the notion of calling and how, you know, we struggle with that. 
uh, it creates these personal crises. And, and for me, you know, it was like, it wasn't so much a personal, wasn't, wasn't so much this notion of crisis as it was this, this notion of, of, will you accept what's being offered? Kids ask me, they say, you talk about Trevecca and, you know, you say, you know, it's so different. What's so different? And I said, well, here's what's different. In the Trevecca that I grew up in, and, and I came here as a little boy and lived on the campus, and then I came back as a student, and we were here together. No one ever asked me, how do you feel? They never once asked me, what would you like to eat today? They said, it's Thursday. Here's your turkey tetrazzini. And, <laughs> and it's Wednesday, yeah. and you'll remember Wednesday was shepherd's pie. Well, no, you, and, and you got to back up the other way. The reason you're having turkey tetrazzini on Thursday is on Tuesday was turkey day. It was turkey day, and now it's turkey tetrazzini day. But there was there was no sense of, of you know, oh, just do what you want to do, or that choice was, you know, something that was an expression of, of you know, you're, you're standing in the community. So, you know, can you, you know, eat the pizza and keep the weight off or, you know, but you, you, you didn't have to fight those notions. Because the community told you, here's your job. And what was handed to you, what was, what was given to me, was this notion of here is the good and here is your role of service. And are you willing to accept that? And in our community, are you willing to accept that as an act of God's grace? See, I think it, I think of it in terms, and here you just finished with this beautiful saying, and I'm going to talk about salad bars. Yeah. So. Oh, goodness. <laughs> because that's just that's the difference. You want to know the difference between me and so it's, Steve? So there's McRib season and there's salad, salad bar, bar season. You knew my dad. Yeah, everything's I know. food. Yeah, I remember. So you know the idea of the the salad bar was personal choice to the extreme. You know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got the Caesar salad. I remember going to a place where they made the table side Caesar salad. Mm-hmm. And a Caesar salad is great until you start watching them make one. Yeah, especially with the fish and the eyes. And the, the fish and the <laughs> you know, it's just they start putting all these ingredients in. And you're watching it, and I'm like, I don't like anchovies. And the chef's like, trust me. Yeah. Trust me. Trust me. You're going to love this. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like what I love is, you go, I would like a Caesar salad, but I need you to hold this, hold this, hold this, hold this. Okay. All right, you understand that's not a Caesar salad anymore. And so what we end up with is the salad bar. Well, the same thing's true in the world of ideas. Well, we, we don't want God, the chef, to go, this is the life. This is a life worth living. This is the good life. This is, I made you, and I made you for a purpose, and this is what that looks like. What we want is to go to the salad bar and go, I'll take a little of this, I'll take a little Kant where it serves my needs. I'll yeah. take a little yes. Kierkegaard where Absolutely. it serves my needs. Little Nietzsche can come in handy yeah. in the old corporate And there's no world. need for unity. There's no need there's for, no need for, consistency. for co- cognitive consistency That's at exactly all. That's exactly right. And what we end up with, with is lives that are out of harmony. Yeah. We end up with dysfunctional lives. We live at a time of more anxiety, stress, and pressure than we've ever had. And I think a big chunk of it is cognitive dissonance where we are trying to bring together ultimate ends and goods that do not go together. They actually yeah. conflict with each other. And yeah. so I, I want to blend. I want to go build a salad of ideas that do not go together. Yeah. One of, I, I remember hearing a lecture um, when I was in graduate school, and this was sort of one of McIntyre's, not necessarily disciples, but a colleague. And he, somebody asked a question about, you know, how do you reconcile this in, in the modern situation in our contemporary world? And he said, well, you can't. And that's, I thought, wow, you know, he, he said, you know, there's a choice here. 
and you've got to make this choice. And somebody said, well, what is the choice? He said, well, to put it as plainly, and I think he used the word baldly as I can, uh, he said, it's the difference between situational ethics where my philosophy and my idealism emerges and it, it doesn't have to be cognitively consistent with me. It doesn't have to be cognitively consistent with my faith community or my sense of God. It doesn't even have to be consistent with uh, the work that I do or my family and and the, the family values. He said, it's the difference between situational ethics and situated ethics. That's and, it. and he talked about, you know, it's very helpful way how in a world where the good is revealed to us, is given to us, is told to us, which is the way this happens, that what goes on is that virtues are acquired as we practice these wonderful expressions of the good within a community committed to that good. And in that, we end up finding ourselves. And that self is different than the self that I would choose or the self that is, you know, implored by, you know, just my own passions or even my own individual reason or even my own choice. Uh, All of a sudden, I find myself as good or as an expression, really, of those virtues and practices in the life uh, that I'm living. And that is where McIntyre says is the wonderful dynamic of not just sort of intellectual discovery, but a discovery of purpose, a discovery of the good. And the scriptures speak to us in ways that I think sometimes we sell short. And it talks about the endless depths of God. It talks about, you know, the unending mercies of God and, uh, you know, that they're new every morning. And I think sometimes we miss in the the beauty of Scripture, um, you know, particularly as you know, it's been expressed uh, by poets who have done a lot of the translation, which is always interesting when you put a poet to work doing translation. But we we see in that you know sort of a, a, a quick moment to make us feel better, and what we're really seeing there is a glimpse of the perfection of the divine uh, of God and of God's life lived out in love for us, uh, in God's atoning work for us, in God's sending God's one and only Son, you know, that that's not just sacrifice. That's sacrifice that is living and breathing and forming us. What Trevecca has to offer, what any good Christian community has to offer, is that sense of how we you, me, our kids have been here, their friends, our friends, can be a witness and an expression and a palpable dynamic part of that living sacrifice that is God's life among us. And in that, that's the good life. And all it's going to cost is everything. (laughs) Then there's that. (laughs) Because we've been told... Not necessarily in our homes. You know, you were talking about being born into a tradition. Well, that we all are. Yeah. We're all born into a tradition. And and I am grateful every day and thank God every day that I was born into a tradition that made me predisposed Mm -hmm. to the sovereignty of God Mm -hmm. in my life. Um, Not everybody has that. No. But as as we go with this world 
particularly U.S. culture at the moment, indoctrinates us, is I'm on my own. Yeah. That the greatest good, I have, I have freedom. And freedom means I decide all this for myself. And if I, if I get the Caesar salad where I let the chef choose what goes in the salad rather than me choosing, somehow I've abdicated my freedom. I've handed a part of myself over. But we were never intended to have that kind of freedom. Yeah. Well, and not only never intended, but it wasn't the way, it, it has never been the way that history has unfolded or that life has happened. Well, the, the, the thing that uh, everybody s- just sort of grabbed onto in terms of these good life discussions as McIntyre was doing his writing starting the 80s, and, you know, he converts to Christianity uh, while writing After Virtue in 1981. But one thing that everybody grabbed onto, and, and this was across disciplines, this is while you and I are in college. And so I can remember seeing the first articles in the books and my professors telling me, hey, you know, go explore this, was this idea of a narrative formed existence. That's it. That there's a story. story story formed world. That's right. And and it's so hot that we're still doing conventions trying to teach people how to do this for their churches, for their corporations, for their families. And we're giving them not only sort of, you know, big think inspiration, but, you know, the tools to create a family scrapbook. Uh, one of my aunts died just a few years ago. Um, just one of the best people I've ever known. She taught me to tie my shoes. She had six kids. And so I was number seven and her sixth child and I are like six months apart. So she helped break me and she died. And in the last two years before her death and she'd beaten cancer three times, but it, it eventually took her life. Her kids sat down with her and they bought a kit that narrated her existence and allowed her voice to come out in it so that they could discover her memories and her pictures and the evidence of her life and things that had been kept and things she wished she had kept. And, you know, they found out things about their mother that she was, for instance, uh, a member of the Methodist Youth League in Newberry, South Carolina, that met. And if you know Newberry, South Carolina, there's this great opera house. You know, it's a relic of the late 19th century. And they met there for these weekly meetings and they recruited their friends and they wore uniforms and they had a code of justice and they took a pledge and, you know, everyone bring another, you know, that kind of thing. And in that process, in, in her death, we sat down and talked about that narrative. McIntyre says, that's how every life has actually been formed. That's it. Whether you know it or not, the narrative of the passions or the narrative of reason overtaking all is a narrative. That's right. And the place that we find who we are is in living with that narrative, even in terms of living with the, you know, to use Homeric words, the heroes of that narrative. Right. To, to use our words, those saints of Trevecca, the saints of the Christian faith. I know churches, uh, you know, when you spread your wings and fly a little bit in the Christian faith, you find out just how peculiar local churches can be. And I know of local churches in St. Louis that demand that when a new baby is born, it be named after a Christian saint. And, you know, that just sort of leaves out all the, you know, hunters and Mallory's and, you know, all the new yeah. names or whatever they are, you know, it, it, there's a certain, and, and you, when you get to know these people, you realize how real this is. And that in naming someone, you know, Hildegard, 
You know, if that's, that's how you know that the community doesn't like you, you know, or if you get named Patrick, that's how you know the community does like you, you know, but you, you are literally your world, your narrative is being expanded backwards beyond your birthday and forwards into the way that the good or the telos or the purpose has been lived out and has outlived these saints. And so the the life of service or the, the life within that narrative becomes a way of getting to know your past and allowing you know the dead to live. This is the reason I'm a historian, because working with dead people is or dead Trevecans or dead Nazarenes is so much easier than working with the living ones. No uh, doubt. <laughs> no doubt about that. But you know, I, I think about you know, names that we rarely hear around here, but they're names that are familiar to me. There are some names that are real familiar because they're names on our building. So like McClurkin, and we know those stories and I try to tell them as often as I can about how McClurkin would meet someone on the street who was struggling and just bring them to the cafeteria and say, uh, you know, to his wife, uh, mother, I've brought our brother home, uh, set another place at the table, uh, you know, and sharing, you know, the, the goodness of God, you know, at, at a table. But there are other names, you know, like Bessie C., who was a missionary nurse to India and was one of the early graduates of Trevecca, one of the first Trevecans to join the Church of the Nazarene when we merged with them in 1915. And she goes off to India, and she lives her life in almost relative obscurity. I knew her because when she came back in the 60s in her retirement, she became the campus nurse. And in her, in the narrative of her life is an embodiment of the good that Trevecca embraces and embodies. And that narrative is absolutely critical because without it, we don't know who we are. We don't know how to name things like happiness. We don't know how to find a way forward. And McIntyre says that, you know, there are virtues, there are practices there is the tradition or what we call personal identity, but he says all of that has to find its way through and in a narrative that tells us who we are. Well, and that even applies, like even the idea of a static versus a dynamic universe, back to people that don't believe in a God, believing the only difference, you know, well, you get it. It's just, you believe in God, but everything else, it's like, no, 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 you live in a static universe. I live in a dynamic university. I'm I'm in a store in a, in university in a dynamic universe. <laughs> universe where university. God has yeah. created the world with a purpose, and there is an end. And we know where history is headed somewhere. Time is headed somewhere. This creation is headed somewhere. It is part of a story. Yeah. And I'm in fact, Judy and I believe this idea of story so much that every night we pray together every night, and at the end of our prayer, we say, "God, help us tomorrow to remember what story we're in." Oh wow. What a prayer. I'll give you an example. It's so important. So I'm sitting in my office, class starting in 10 minutes. Look up, students standing in the door, tear-faced. I need a minute. Yeah. What story am I in? Oh. I'm Dean the teacher. My class starts. I've got 57 people in yeah. a room down the hall expecting me to come in that room yeah. any minute. And I can see on her. We know this. We've done this a long time. You look in their face. And you see, this is not a 10-minute conversation. Yeah. And if I send her away right now, yep. so at that moment, do I weigh what's my duty? What's my greater duty? What's my- no, the yeah. decision's already yeah, or made. Is, Why? Or am I going to enjoy this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> is this going to make me happy? Yeah. But 
It's an easy decision. Why? Because I already know what story I am. And, yeah. and I have written on a t- post-it note on my desk, yeah. students are not an interruption. Oh, wow. And so I say, give me one second, have a seat. And I go down and I tell Joan, go tell my class I'm not going to make it, please. And I go back to my office and her opening words were, I really did think I was going to kill myself last night. And you go, thank God I knew what story I was in. I don't say that to make myself sound like a hero. I say that to go, knowing what story you're just a normal part of the community. It's just this is that moment. This is what happens. And and so knowing what story you're in can shape your life. But you have to have you have to have aligned your habits around that. You have to have thought through. What kind of a life supports yeah. the role that I'm playing in the story? You have to know I've those been, who have lived it before you. You have to have all of yeah. that. And it's, you and I had teachers who lived it that's before right. us and in us. Yeah, at that moment, says Will Willimon, says, you have remembered who you are. That's exactly and it. And Fred Craddock says, it's our job as Christians. It's really interesting. Craddock says in his sermon, he's, he's talking about John the Baptist. And he's talking about John the Baptist being compared to Elijah and John the Baptist being compared to the prophets. And then John the Baptist, who is this, you know, forerunner of Jesus. And he says, what our job in the church is, is to give people memories worth having, memories worth living into, which are memories of the way God has acted in the past so that we know when somebody like John the Baptist shows up or when a student who has an urgent issue shows up, we know who they are. That's right. And, and we know who we are in that moment. That's exactly right. And what McIntyre talks about in this particular setting, I don't think it's in After Virtue. I think it's in one of his other works. But he talks about the roles within a society. And that we don't just take on a story. We take a role in that story. And that role, like a Caesar salad, is a bundle of virtues and ideas and beliefs yeah. and habits. Yeah. And we don't want to be handed that. It's like, I don't know if you've ever been in a play, but it's like you get handed a role. Here are all your lines. Here's your backstory. Here is who you're going to be when you walk out on that stage. Yeah. And so when the student's standing at the door, I don't get to think about, I don't really feel up to this today. Oh, I was going to do this or I was going to do that. Or I don't know that I'm in a space where I'm prepared to deal yeah. with this doesn't matter because right. I I have a role well and to, to put, play yeah, in this moment and to put you know to sort of look at this in the stark philosophical terms if there is no essential unity if there's no good then any notion as life happens of morality is muddled or it's unclear right. you know a student shows up there's a moment. And without this notion of the good, am I going to enjoy this? Is it worth my time? You know, is this going to help me be gonna, all I can be? Is this going to help me be all I can be? I don't feel be? authentically. Yeah. If, I, if I help her right now, it's gonna I'm help not me being do my authentic. Jo- it's going to help me do my duty to my job, which yeah. means that I have to be at class on time. But when there is the good, when there is this great sense of ethical morality that is embodied in the community— then notions of justice become clear. But so do notions of time. That's exactly it. So do notions of moral responsibility. And those notions create for us not only the clear 
pathway to, and here let me use a theological term, the sanctified life, the the God-led, spirit-filled, spirit-led life that can create a person like you who can say to a secretary, hey, tell my class, it's going to be you know, X number, I'll be there in 15 minutes. You know, you can say to a student, give me just a moment. I want to help you. I, I'm, I'm, we're going to make, you know, we're, we're, we'll, we'll sit and talk about this. When that is there, you already know what the good is. And you, in some sense, have seen it lived out by others within narrative situations that are identified as your community, your life. For us, you know, Christian Nazarene Treveca. And I think that in the power of that is the way to becoming a person of character. That's it. To living a good life. And I would say to being sanctified. I completely agree. And I think that's where we're headed as we work through this whole idea of the good life as a podcast is, you know, in this first season, working through the alternative ideas that can take on it and shape even our narrative. If you even believe in a narrative, what is my life about? What story am I in and what role do I play? Well, if that story is ultimately about Dean needs to be happy or Dean needs to do his duty or Dean needs to be authentic to himself or Dean needs to the self-actualization, be the best version of myself, those alternative stories that come in. Well, and I think it's important in this discussion to note, you know, what I talked about occasionally and some previously in our conversations about these rival notions. That's right. There are in in sifting through this philosophically, intellectually, there are going to be some that don't just come up short. They're just not tenable. That's right. Even even as an idea. That's with, right. Within our community. Right. And where they run into conflict is where I, where I was headed with that was yeah. to say, at, at the end of it, it's about character. Yeah. And as we get to future seasons, really character is where we, we land. Because we want to talk about, all right, if this is the telos of my life, what does that imply about work Yeah. in the type of work that I do? What does it say about money and how I should use money yeah. and what, how much, you know. Well, it, what are, you know, so I heard a great sermon a few years ago down at um, the Episcopal Church downtown on Broadway. Uh, kids now studying at Oxford. He's just this great preacher. His name's Joshua Kaler. And the title of the sermon was, What is this all for? Right. And he tells this great story at the beginning uh, of the sermon where he says, the best job I ever had was I was a research assistant and there were these psychologists and uh, I was supposed to to read these magazines and tell them what was in the magazines. And they give me a list of questions for their test subjects. And all of their test subjects, this was a counseling situation, were people who were getting ready to be married. And so he had to look them in the eye and had to ask them those questions to see what their responses were. And he wasn't supposed to give them any hints. You know, they just wanted to see if these were expressions of their personality. Right. You want to talk about another issue. Right. And and so the, the four questions are interesting. What are kids for? Hmm. What is sex for? What is a home for? You know, is a home a place where I'm allowed to do whatever I want in safety? Or is a home a place where I can uh, work and be a husband and, you know, all those things that we're doing now with homework and everything. And he says in this sermon, you know, the great genius of the Christian faith is it tells you what this is all for. Interesting. That's exactly right. Tells you what life is for, tells you what sex is for, tells you what children are for, tells you what money is for. And then he says, 
And he's preaching this sermon to these rich Episcopalians down on Broadway in Nashville. This is the old, old guard. And he says, "Um, I've been here now on staff for three years, and I'm getting ready to leave you in a year. He knew he was going to Oxford. And he says, "Um, and in the rarefied air, that's his term, uh, of this chapel of God, you know, all these rich people, he says, says, I come in here and think about what the scriptures say about rich people, and I look at you all and I get very, very scared for the eternal destiny of my own soul. <laughs> it's really interesting. You know, he says it, he says, and I, you know, and I, I see the way we live our lives and how we try to position ourselves in society and how we take up this moral cause or that moral cause. And he says, and it doesn't do me any good because he says all of our righteousness is like in front of God, filthy rags. And he says, and then I look down at the table of the Lord and I see the sacrifice of our God. And I remember what this is all for. And all of a sudden he takes on this beautiful little church, stained glass windows, names, social service, place of witness now in a busy tourist. And he says, this is what this is all for, to bear witness as a people in life, in action, in the way we tell our story, how we got here by God's grace, through God's ministrations, God brought us to this place. God has placed us here. You know, God is calling us to his service here on in this spot. And he says, and now because of what Jesus has done and because of the way that people listened to God in the city of Nashville and built a church on this spot, I know what this is all for. That's what I think every Christian community ought to want to be able to say of its own witness. God has brought us here. We know that story. We know what Christ has done. And now we know what this is all for so that when a student shows up and knocks on your door with tears in their eyes, you know what to do because you know what the good life is and you know what this is all for. This is The Good Life is hosted by Dean Deal and Steve Hoskins. The show is brought to you by the Trevecca Nazarene University Alumni Association. Produced by Wise Company with help from Aaron Fairchild. To learn more or to donate to our show's mission, head over to trevecca.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.